All right, what's going on, guys? So today I'm sitting down with Stan Efferdine. So uh, probably a lot of you who follow me already know who he is. Really, really excited to have him here. And we're going to be discussing bodybuilding nutrition and a lot of the nuance that goes into it. Now, um, for those of you who do know who Stan is, uh, you'll know that he's really, really big into the nutrition scene. Um, he's kind of spearheaded the, uh, the vertical diet and created a lot of really cool things around nutrition. So Stan, first off, thanks so much for jumping on. Really, really excited to have you here. Can you give a quick intro for those who maybe aren't familiar with who you are? Yeah, for sure. Stan Efforting, founder of the Vertical Diet. Uh, you know, I was a skinny kid, 140 pounds in college, wrestled 98 and 106 in high school. And uh, I just wanted to be a pro bodybuilder. And so I've uh, been kind of been a professional dieter all my life. I've gained and lost, I think, well in excess of a thousand pounds throughout my 30 years of, uh, of competing since going back as far as 1986. Uh, so uh, I've, I've spent a lot of times on both ends of the spectrum, bulking up uh, in excess of 300 pounds multiple times since as far back as the early 90s. And of course, dieting down for bodybuilding competitions and getting as lean as possible, probably 5%, 6% fat to compete as an IFBB pro bodybuilder. So uh, I've then kind of transitioned now over the last probably nine years since retiring, I'm 54 now, uh, into helping other athletes learn some of the hard lessons that I, I learned simply by trial and error initially, uh, back before the internet existed, uh, how to gain weight and lose weight, both men and women uh, for competing and for, for performance, and then also just dad bods and soccer moms. The vertical diet's kind of known worldwide now to help the thousands of people just lose weight and feel great. Yeah, and I think uh, half or for for a long time there, it was kind of like a big, that's how I found out about it anyways. Yeah. was because you were, you were coaching him and got him pretty damn shredded. And for someone who's like, I don't know what his body weight was, but he was like maybe almost 400 with abs, which is pretty crazy. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And that was an example of when I got a hold of Hopthor, he was 440 pounds mm -hmm. and uh, he was a little over heavy. I've always said that, that powerlifters and strongmen and even football players in the off season, uh, they should uh, periodize their weight. They should lose a little weight to correct metabolic syndrome, which is something that I certainly experienced when I was bulking. Um, metabolic syndrome would be things like uh, fatty liver disease, high blood pressure, high blood sugars, uh, those kinds of things. And usually weight loss is the number one way to cure that, but strength athletes and strong men, et cetera, they're not really interested in weight loss necessarily. Uh, so we just got to try and look at it in terms of a uh, kind of a long-term plan to periodize their weight. So I brought him down about 7% of his body weight into the three nineties. Uh, and then we bulked him back up for competition. But in the process, we were able to significantly uh, improve a lot of those biomarkers, his liver health, uh, using blood tests, obviously, um, his blood sugars and blood pressure. And the same thing would be true of say Lane Johnson from the Philadelphia Eagles, uh, when he was, uh, having trouble with his blood pressure and he needed to gain weight. Uh, we implemented some strategies that would help him improve that kind of my high blood pressure, quick fix kit that I've been uh, screaming about to everybody because uh, that's that's probably the single most important thing for the meat necks for my my big uh, powerlifting buddies out there to pay attention to. So, yeah, those are uh, those are fun times. And Hoffer ultimately ended up you know north of 450 pounds to set that 1100 pound deadlift record, and then dieted down to 340, I think, to uh, to box in that boxing match. So he's moved around quite a bit. Yeah. 
And honestly, one thing you said there that I, I think will go over most people's heads is the longevity piece. Like, so I'm 272 right now. And the one thing that I can definitely say as, as a bigger athlete is, you know, I think I have a lot more appreciation of a lot of like the health pieces, just because I think it kind of ends up sort of exaggerating things. You know, like when I was smaller, falling down, running, all these things, it doesn't have that big of an effect. But if I fall down now, like it actually hurts, you know, as stupid as that sounds. And I think that a lot of the health issues tend to be a little bit more magnified. And so you kind of have to start taking that stuff seriously. And like, I've been a huge believer of, you know, whenever you look at the, the athletes that are the most jacked, the most ripped, the strongest, whatever, you know, they've been doing it for like 20 years. And so if you're really serious about this, and this is something that's part of your lifestyle, you really do have to think about longevity. And I think, unfortunately, like, you know, when I was in my early twenties, that certainly wasn't something that I ever thought of now I'm 33. And so obviously it's a lot more of a, uh, you know, preventative pieces are, are make up a much more significant part of my programming. Um, even in addition to just even outside of the diet. And so oh, I just of course. To stress that. Yeah. And remember I, I set ultimately set my, uh, my last world record, I was 45 years old when I totaled the 2303. Uh, it was 275 class. And if not purely by accident, uh, well, one thing I did throughout my career is I had well over 100 blood tests. Uh, I did that quite frequently. I use uh, Merrick Health, M-A-R-E-K, health.com. I've used a lot of providers over the years to get online blood tests, but uh, these folks were about half the price. And usually cost is a barrier to entry. People just don't want to spend three, $400 for a blood test. And so these folks put forth a really comprehensive panel that was only 140 bucks. I wish I had that, you know, 10 years ago because I've spent thousands and thousands of dollars on blood tests. And so I learned a lot of lessons along the way. Uh, but as mentioned, maybe just retrospectively and purely by accident, because I was competing in both bodybuilding and powerlifting, I wasn't staying heavy all year round. And most of these metabolic syndrome problems occur with the excess body weight. That seems to be the primary driver. I've said many times that 95% of health benefits are realized simply from weight loss itself, irrespective of the diet. And we found that true with to be the McDonald's diet, the 7-Eleven diet, the, the Twinkies diet. Uh, they all showed improvements in biomarkers simply with weight loss itself. Uh, including reduced blood pressure, lipids, um, uh, you know, blood sugars, all of those things simply from weight loss. And since I was bodybuilding and powerlifting both, I would go back and forth from gaining weight to losing weight. And that's kind of how I happened upon my theory that, that periodizing your weight is very important for maintenance of your health long term. Having said that, there's a difference between health and fitness. I've said that fitness is the ability to perform a particular duty or task. The fitness level required to be world's strongest man is not healthy. So what you want to do is mitigate the damage as best you can for as long as you can, understanding the last 30 to 60 days before a competition, and this would be true of, of a female bikini uh, competitor as well, you put yourself into an arena that will uh, compromise your health to some degree. And the goal would be to minimize that or postpone it as long as possible. And on the side of the chronic dieters, or even the um, maybe your uh, your ultra uh, endurance female athletes in college, uh, that would be in that would be in the case of say uh, the female triad, uh, a chronic calorie deficit, anemia, 
they experience some of those problems, low thyroid, hair loss, uh, cessation of the menstrual period, amenorrhea. So all those things, and, and, and men dieting as well, they see a significant hormone loss and uh, a lot of the same problems, muscle loss when they get down below, say, 10, 8% body fat. So I don't mean to be going bouncing back and forth too much, but it's, it's not strictly an overweight or an underweight issue. It's really kind of what people put themselves through to compete. And it may be necessary. And I don't want to frighten people, but I want to say that if you can minimize that window uh, and the degree, the duration and the degree of these adverse effects, uh, then you should do that as much as possible. And, and you should be able to actually improve your performance and lengthen your career as a result. That's actually pretty interesting because I, I think that I have heard of sort of like a weight periodization model that you're talking about, but it's not something that I've really ever tried or really seen many people do. And I mean, it makes sense what you're saying, right? Because that's definitely something that uh, I've noticed just even being heavier. It's, it's just harder on your body in general. Uh, mm -hmm. I'm still nowhere where I need, like nowhere near where I need to be right now. I am kind of cutting down a little bit. But that's kind of an interesting thing. I'm, I'm looking forward to sort of experiment a little bit more with that. Um, it should be it, it should be somewhat of an oscillation where you, you yeah. bulk in the diet because you're every time you gain weight, even if you're trying to, to gain muscle, you're going to gain some degree of fat. Obviously, your strategy, uh, your, your calories and macros and the pace at which you gain weight is going to have a, a pretty significant effect on how much fat you gain. And when you lose weight, you're going to lose some muscle tissue. And your diet and your sleep and your training and the pace of weight loss is going to dictate how much muscle you lose while you diet. So both of those, uh, it, it just doesn't help to dirty bulk or to crash diet. It just puts you in a worse position uh, long term. So uh, there are methods that we can use to improve the outcomes on both ends. But it's not a significant weight loss. I mean, I, I say that, but you and I as you know, people who scrape for every pound of muscle and, and hate to see it disappear on a diet. I get it because I was, you know, I was undersized and, it, and my challenge throughout my career was, was holding on to weight. Um, so it was really hard when I dieted down for bodybuilding shows, particularly doing it incorrectly, historically, too much cardio, too much, uh, calorie restriction, um, uh, maybe even just too much restriction of, of foods in general, uh, I would lose a significant amount of muscle and get real stringy. But the weight loss, you know, and I don't, I don't want to spin this off into the general population because we're talking more specifically about athletes. Uh, but in terms of metabolic syndrome and liver health primarily, which is kind of the primary driver of metabolic syndrome is fatty liver, uh, which ultimately becomes insulin resistance and then uh, high blood pressure and high lipids, about a 7% weight loss can resolve about 95% of fatty liver as seen with uh, uh, biopsy. So a 300 pound individual would only need to lose 20 pounds. And so I'm, I'm trying to make that, uh, that, that effort seem reasonable and achievable. Uh, and, you know, generally if you're 300 pounds, you probably have about 20 pounds. You could lose without compromising performance significantly if you do it uh, you know, in a, in a smart way, slowly with sufficient protein and resistance training. I don't think you would compromise your performance very much. I found that I wasn't any stronger weighing 305 than I was uh, weighing 280 and cutting to 275. I, I didn't see any increase in, 
in strength between that. Cause that was kind of the max for my body. You know, somebody taller, like a Hofthor, he needed to be north of 400 to perform at that level with those weights uh, for the world's strongest man. Yeah, no, that makes sense for sure. Um, I, I think, I guess in my specific context, it was more like I got big, I was big for a long time. And then I started working with a nutrition coach. I'm still with a nutrition coach actually. Um, and that was my very first coach. And I started with him at about 285 and a year later, I'm 272. So it's not that big of a difference, but in yep. terms of the photos and the body compositions, it's like such a dramatic change Yeah, and like how I feel on a regular basis. And it's funny because a lot of the stuff is stuff that you recommend as well, right? With like making sure you're getting a certain amount of steps in throughout the day, especially being a bigger guy, just for your aerobic fitness and stuff like that, eating, going for walks, like little things like that, just breaking up your, your day, sitting down. Cause I sit down, I do research all day, basically. Um, so I'm at my computer and little things like that are really, really tremendous for, for dieting. And it's funny because that has nothing to do with dieting directly. That's all just kind of the practical lifestyle stuff that I think really helps bolster a lot of those results. So before we get into some of the dietary stuff, can you talk a little bit about some of the lifestyle variables that you really think are important for, you know, bolstering adherence, really biasing certain results that you've seen with your athletes as well? Yeah. You know, what you just said right there is is important when rob kearney world's strongest gay came to me last year to uh try and set that uh overhead american record in the log press uh it was only i think we were only six weeks out maybe eight weeks at the most from the attempt and he said he was feeling pretty crappy he was actually had started losing a little bit of strength uh he felt bloated blood pressure was elevated and he wanted to lose weight and as a coach, getting somebody ready for a max lift, the last thing you want to do is take weight off of them. <laughs> That's just, it's not wise. You know, uh, mass moves mass. And I'm not, like I said, I was stronger at 280 than I was at 305. But there's a transition period there. Uh, while you're losing the weight, you do lose a little bit of strength that you can regain. Um, but if you're that close to a competition, losing weight isn't ideal. So there were some methods that we implemented that helped him with his blood pressure and digestion and water retention. Uh, as you were asking about specifically in terms of blood pressure, if we can, uh, you know, depending on what they're eating, generally, if they're that heavy 280, 285, they're eating a lot of uh, fast foods or uh, packaged foods, you know, pizza and that kind of thing. And so their sodium is just way too high for their workload. And for power lifters and strong men, generally, they don't have the workload to justify. They're not sweating enough, uh, to be honest. They take longer rest periods, less volume and frequency. Um, so they don't really need to be slamming sodium all the time. And so uh, I just make a revision to their diet. To, to I look at some really high sodium foods, trying to get, reduce those because that can have a, a small effect on, on blood pressure. Um, the next thing we would do is introduce sufficient potassium. It's pretty huge in terms of its ability. But probably the greatest benefit of things like the DASH diet isn't necessarily the sodium restriction on blood pressure. It's the potassium introduction, more fruits and vegetables. And that can have a mitigating effect and help balance water in the body, which also helps with the water retention in addition to the blood pressure. Uh, so potassium was big. Calcium and magnesium is another one on top of that. Calcium from food, just make sure they get sufficient, say, cheese or yogurt or dairy if they can handle milk. Um, those were big. And then we supplement magnesium generally, because it's kind of hard to get from foods. 
Uh, and then in terms of uh, his digestion, we just went with a low FODMAP menu, which is uh, uh, FODMAPs are, are high gas foods, fermentable oligo dye, monosaccharides and polyols. And it's, it's a temporary intervention. It's prescribed for people with IBS who, have, who, who definitely have digestive distress, painful digestive distress. But you can experience a, some relief in gas and bloating at the same time using picking more foods from that menu or avoiding some of the foods, uh, avoiding some of the foods that are on the, their high FODMAP and choosing some foods that are lower FODMAP uh, without totally going on an overly restrictive diet plan. Uh, an example of FODMAPs would be things like uh, some grains, uh, beans, legumes, uh, broccoli, garlic, onions, things that, that could potentially cause uh, gas and bloating. And so I just pulled those out of his diet and gave him some more lower FODMAP foods. So he didn't have as much bloating or gas. You know, we'd use more white rice um, for his carbohydrate instead of tons of grains and stuff. And he has to eat a lot of food and, and FODMAP foods in those quantities are, are going to cause, you know, a lot of, a lot of gas and bloating. So that was a big one. And then for blood sugars, uh, like you mentioned, the, you know, well, another th for everything is obviously the sleep and a CPAP for people with apnea. That's a monster for blood pressure. You can drop your blood pressure by 10 to 20 points by using a, a CPAP if you have apnea and are holding your breath. That's one of the most significant side effects of apnea is high blood pressure. Uh, plus, it, it, you know, it's just deadly. It raises your, your uh, blood thickness as well, your RBC, hemoglobin, and hematocrit. All those big athletes uh, almost immediately out of the gate we put them on a CPAP right away because they all snore and they all wake up tired and they all hold their breath at night. That's just a, it's a matter of neck girth and it's unavoidable. Um, having said that, I, I've seen, you know, some, some smaller or lighter athletes, Jordan Fagenbaum from uh, Barbell Medicine is only 198 pounds. He wears a CPAP. He's got a thick neck from squatting. So it's really about crowding of the airway uh, necessarily, but certainly as you get north of 250 to 60 plus, uh, you're snoring and waking up tired. You probably have some degree of apnea and should use a CPAP, which has a, a huge impact on blood pressure. And then uh, that also affects blood sugars and insulin sensitivity and, you know, hunger. If you're trying to diet it, ghrelin hormone, and, and then you're just compelled to eat all the time. Uh, but blood sugars, lastly, you know, we eat protein first in, in the meal. Uh, we uh, take a 10 minute walk after the meal. Uh, those, uh, those are both huge for controlling blood sugars. Um, the, as far as the GI, uh, classification, the glycemic index and whether or not a carbohydrate is high glycemic or low glycemic doesn't seem to be much evidence that there's any consistency to that. Um, uh, one, you never eat those carbs in isolation, which is how they're tested. You always have them with proteins and fats. And so the, 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 the blood sugar elevation isn't as significant. Uh, and two, people are very individualistic. They might respond very differently. And we see that now with all the CGMs going around, the continuous glucose monitors, the people have very different responses to different carbs and acute responses to, you know, acute, what they call postprandial glycemia, you know, elevations of blood sugar after meals is perfectly normal and, and shouldn't, you shouldn't really have to worry about it. Uh, you're just looking at people who have, you know, significant levels of, of, uh, of insulin resistance, uh, but obviously lifting weights, taking walks, eating protein first, eating larger meals earlier in the day, uh, all have mitigating effects on blood sugars as well. Weight loss, of course, particularly the liver fat loss, all have mitigating effects. So we were able to implement some of those uh, techniques with 
uh, with Rob and he felt a ton better, actually gained a little bit of weight and set that American record. Um, and so he was, he was happy with the process. That's awesome. Yeah. I think for me, one of the big things was digestion. Cause you know, <clears throat> I think, I don't think you obviously need to be like 270, 250, whatever. Like if you're 140 bulking up to 160, that's still going to be yeah. emotional stress in your digestive system. And like, that's one thing that I find is extremely important, especially for adherence, right? Like is bingo making sure that you actually feel good and you're not stuffed all the time and biasing certain foods that, that are yeah. going to allow your digestive system just really ramp up. I find that people are like, they're one, actually, this is kind of a funny one because it's like, if you're not bloated all the time, you actually look a little bit leaner which ends up being a little bit more yep. motivating and can bolster adherence in, in, in my opinion or in my experience anyways. So there's like little yep. things like that, just better adherence because you just feel better. You're happier. The process is less miserable. Like all these different things that don't really have as much to do with your actual body composition changes, but practically they're pretty important as well. And not a lot of people really talk about digestion, especially in bodybuilding. It's just like eat this, get lean. It's all like the macros. And I, obviously that stuff's very important, but I think a lot of those practical things from an adherence standpoint, an enjoyment standpoint, and a longevity standpoint can be really, really beneficial as well. In addition to all the stuff that you're saying about like FODMAPs and stuff like that, when those issues do prop up for sure. So um, you talked a little bit about, um, you know, dealing with some of the athletes. So if assuming you're dealing with, let's say a natural athlete, what does that intake process kind of look like? What, what are those kind of key indicators or pieces of information that you look for to kind of start out that initial dietary strategy for them? You know, the big rocks are going to be calories first and foremost. If they want to gain weight, they have to be in surplus. If they want to lose weight, they have to be in a deficit, period. There's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. And it's the primary driver of, of uh, health outcomes with weight loss. And uh, uh, obviously for weight gain, you just, there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. There's no secrets uh, tricks or hacks that can avoid the necessity to be in a surplus or a deficit. Having said that, you can go into a surplus, gain a little bit of weight, and then stop gaining weight because your metabolism will increase. Your body will start burning more calories in a day. And that's kind of where I was at, where I struggled a lot uh, trying to gain weight. It, it, I would add a bunch of calories, gain a little weight, and then just dead stop. And then if you would start dieting too soon, I see this a lot when I work with physique competitors, men, men's uh, physique competitors, uh, they'll put on a little bit of weight in the off season, then immediately diet right back down for a show and end up with no net gain in, in lean muscle mass. Sometimes you have to hold on to that for a while, uh, to create what, you know, we kind of say, uh, unscientifically a new set point. And so that muscle, uh, you don't lose that muscle very fast when you diet. And again, as mentioned earlier, there's strategies to gain more muscle than fat and lose uh, less muscle than fat when you're going in either direction. Uh, time being the key component is you're just patient and gain the muscle more slowly and lose the fat more slowly on either end. But uh, the hardest part is, is the calories. I always say the training's the easy parts, the fun part for those people who are trying to gain weight, uh, just eating enough. And, and it gets harder and harder and harder as you get bigger and bigger and bigger. And as your workload increases, obviously you're going to burn more calories. Guys like Hofthor and Shaw and, and, and those guys that I've worked with, um, you, you hit the nail on the head is just to make it, I use the term simple, sensible, and sustainable. Uh, and you said adherence and that's, you know, I say compliance is the science. And, uh, 
one of the probably the biggest thing that changed that I was able to make or the, the biggest thing that they felt made the most difference was that the diet was easier for them to consume. It was just less work. They were uh, they weren't as full as often. Their their stomach felt better. Um, they could consume the number of calories they needed to consume to maintain their weight a little easier. And those are the things that are stressful. The training isn't necessarily all that stressful. It's you know it's kind of fun for us. We enjoy that. It's kind of why we do this. Uh, and then everything outside of that, the sleeping and the eating, it just helps us so we can continue to have fun doing this. So we can uh, go to the gym and and have these fantastic workouts and continue to progress. So, uh, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the methods that I used for compliance uh, was to use a, uh, particularly with weight gain was to use a diet that was a little easier to digest. Um, so beyond calories, now we're at protein. And I, I don't think there's any question that everybody knows they have to get sufficient protein. Our industry doesn't have a problem with that. Um, when you're gaining weight, you might be able to eat a little less protein. And the only reason I mention that is because protein is very satiated and it has a higher thermic effect of food, which means you net out fewer calories than you consume. For every 100 calories of protein you eat, you only net out about 70 because it has a, a high cost of, of, uh, of metabolism. And that's important if you're trying to gain weight and you're trying to eat you know, two grams of protein per pound of body weight, you're going to be full all the time and, and have a hard time consuming it. You don't need that much. In a calorie surplus, you probably only need about 0.8 grams per pound. So I actually reduced Hofthor and Shaw's protein intake so I could throw more carbs at them. I also reduced their fat intake, which is one of the biggest problems with bulkers is they just tend to eat too much fat because they see that it's got nine calories per gram and they can consume you know, their thousand calories per meal more easily if it's in a highly palatable, ultra-processed, high sugar, high fat food. Uh, but the problem with that is, is that fat's more easily stored as fat uh, in a surplus. It's kind of easy to go over your surplus. It keeps you full longer, or satiates you longer. Um, and the carbohydrates are really much better for performance, particularly for people that are lifting. Um, it actually lends itself better to increasing uh, your performance in the gym, which you know more sets, more reps. Uh, is going to give you a better result long term, and it, it helps with muscle protein breakdown. You only need enough fats uh, for health, you know, to transport nutrients. Uh, there's certainly a you know around 0.3 to 0.4 grams per pound, and the rest I'm driving carbs, and that's kind of consistent with what you know the ISSN recommends and the NSCA. I mean, for large athletes or for endurance athletes, they're they're looking at you know five to eight grams per pound. So um, uh, you know, about five grams per pound, probably. And for an ultra endurance athletes, maybe as high as 10 and 12 grams per pound. So um, I'm, I'm, I'm locking in their protein at about a gram per pound or a little bit less if they have a hard time eating that much. I'm putting their fats at around 0.4 grams per pound. So a, a 250 pound athlete uh, that was reasonably lean would take in 250 grams of protein, 125 grams of fat, and the rest would be carbs and the rest is determined by what their total daily calorie burn would be that would enable them to stay in a surplus. And then ideally, if you're trying to gain mass, you know, we've talked about calories and we've talked about protein and I've mentioned the importance of the macros after that, how you split up proteins, fats, and carbs after that is, is kind of meal timing, uh, as next important on the list, which is of course is, this is a, a scale of, uh, of a hierarchy of most to least important calories, protein, macronutrients, uh, and then distribution or timing. Uh, 
again, the ISSN recommends about four evenly spaced protein feedings throughout the day, four to six uh, would be optimal because your body doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't have any mechanism to store protein. And so you'd like to get those feedings about every, you know, ideally about every four hours. If you have to eat a lot of calories, the smaller, more frequent meals might make that easier for you. Um, but I would suggest a minimum of four meals a day for performance uh, to get that protein uh, feeding about every four hours or so throughout the day. And lastly on the list, you know, and I hate to say it as much as I focus on, on uh, high quality foods is you're going to be your micronutrients. And, uh, you know, for people who are trying to gain weight and generally eating a lot of foods that typically not very deficient in micronutrients, but there are other issues, as I mentioned, if you get sufficient past potassium, it's going to help you with blood pressure and with water balance. And so my carbs, I like to start with high potassium carbs. That's, I lead with things like uh, a daily potato or two because they have twice the potassium as a banana. Um, fruit is a great choice. Um, uh, and then yogurt. And then of course your meats also have uh, 100 milligrams of potassium per ounce. So I try and build a, a, a foundation of about 4,700 milligrams of potassium a day into a diet. And then if they need more calories and they wanna you know, make them easy to consume, I'm into the white rice and even uh, going so far as to, to sprinkle a little dextrose on that, just mechanically speaking, it's easier to eat more of it. You digest it faster, so you're hungry again sooner. So uh, and then another strategy would be like the monster mash using ground meats instead of whole steak, because again, more surface area, easier to consume more of it faster in larger quantities and hungry again sooner. So those are some of the little practical strategies that help people with compliance. Awesome. And I think one of the things that, that you mentioned that um, I think is also pretty important is uh, the, the frequency of meals. So I know and this is something that I get a lot of, you know, confusion about when, when I get questions about this is like, well, I've heard that there's not really a big difference between three to four meals or four to five or whatever. But a lot of the times that's like looking at, you know, net protein balance or hypertrophy or whatever, but it's kind of not looking at any sort of the practical issues. Like if you imagine someone like half Thor, I'm not sure how much he had to eat, but if you're going to try and eat all of that in three meals, it's like, good luck. You know, there, there's just no way you're going to be able to do that and not just be a couch potato for the next like five hours after your meal. You know? Yeah. So I think you hit on a couple, you hit on a couple important topics. And I, I said, look, we're talking about sports performance today. We're talking about bodybuilders and powerlifters and competitive athletes for the vast majority of the population, you know, 99% of the population in terms of weight loss, um, it doesn't matter. Two meals a day or six meals a day, if you equate for, for ca total calories and protein intake, you get similar outcomes. Um, and where you even put fats and carbs doesn't matter. We've seen that in the Diet Fits trial out of Stanford, over 600 people for a year. They studied uh, subsequent trials that have all shown the same thing. When you control for calories and protein, it doesn't matter where you put your fats and carbs for weight loss. Uh, you're going to get similar outcomes. It's just a matter of personal preference for adherence. When you're talking about athletes, now the number of protein feedings can make a difference. The carbohydrates absolutely make a difference in terms of the, the, the workout performance. And like you just said, in terms of compliance, it's hard to eat 6,000 calories in three meals. That's, those are some large meals. You might need six meals to do that. And so those are the decisions that you make that become a priority based on adherence. So you're right on money there. Yeah. 
Um, let me just see here. For some reason I'm getting a, a pop-up saying that I only have like seven minutes left. I'm not sure why that's happening. I've never had that issue before. Um, but Oh, on your Zoom? I don't know. Yeah. I, I've only ever had that for like meetings of three or something like that. So I'm not sure why that's happening. But at any rate, that's okay. Um, I don't have uh, many questions left anyways. So in, in terms of um, flexibility in, in the diet and uh, biasing certain foods, for instance, I know that's a question that uh, I often get because I'm a big, big advocate of, you know, eating as clean as possible. Even if you are bigger, like even myself, like I eat very, very clean because I just notice that like, I don't feel sluggish when I do that. Like I feel good. You know, 100%. my digestion's good. And I think that if you're like really intentional about mapping out your meals and like you said, the nutrient timing, the food quality, the micronutrients, the fruits, all that stuff, and your meals are structured effectively, you can just kind of ramp up your metabolism, feel really good, have great digestion, all that stuff. But yeah. what are some, what are some examples of food? I know obviously you're big on like steaks and that was actually one thing that I jumped on too. So I got to thank you personally for that because yeah. I was like hating dieting. And then I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm just going to have a steak a day, see how I feel. And it's like, I get in like 80 grams of protein in one sitting. It's great. It tastes delicious. I don't feel like I'm dieting. So even just from like a, a restriction standpoint, it, mm -hmm. it bolsters adherence. So that's been awesome for me. I know you're big on like white rice and things like that, but what are some other options um, for, for kind of staples for people who are dieting? Yeah, you know, now it's a matter, I give them a list of what are your favorite foods and have them score them on zero to 10. And obviously, I don't include foods that are zero. And, and I try and include more of the foods that are 10. I try and meet the criterion first, the big rocks, the calories, the protein, uh, obviously, the macronutrients then would be uh, if their performance to get sufficient carbs. Um, and, and then I want to get the potassium. And so I, I try and get them to choose those foods. If they can meet their calorie surplus and eat you know, a, a, a reasonable percentage of let's say 10%, 15% of whatever they want. And it doesn't impair, like you said, their ability to eat a subsequent meal or to eat adequate calories. It doesn't give them too much gas and bloating, diarrhea. So it's kind of how I measure it is based on personal feedback uh, on, on certain foods. Dieters, it's a little more difficult. When you're in a calorie deficit, you've got less room for I guess I'd say if it fits your macros, right? Mm -hmm. Because you're eating fewer calories, there's a greater opportunity for you to go into micronutrient deficiencies. You might not get sufficient potassium if you're eating just white rice and not the potato. Uh, because, you know, there's a thousand milligrams of potassium in a potato and there's about zero in white rice. Uh, the same could be true, you know, this kind of, this, this whole diet recommendation is really kind of an anti-diet recommendation. The guru diets that, that we're all familiar with from days of old, uh, and, and some people still recommend them. Uh, I can almost predict when somebody goes to a nutritionist or to a guru uh, bodybuilding dieter, uh, I'm a, I can write out their diet on a, on a sticky note in three seconds. You know, it's going to be egg whites, tilapia, broccoli, chicken breast, and that's about it. A little protein powder, maybe a, a doll of a peanut butter. There you go. There's your diet. Just saved you a hundred bucks. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, is, is that they're unnecessary. I think that they're uh, deficient. Uh, they're over restrictive. So people end up binging. Um, and my, my biggest concern is that when you eliminate things like red meat, <clears throat> got you back there. 
Yep. My concern is when you eliminate things like red meat for women, now you've got, especially in a calorie deficit in the diet, they very commonly suffer from anemia. Uh, That's where your iron's at. When you eliminate whole eggs, or at least at least one egg yolk, now you've eliminated choline uh, and biotin, you know, skin, hair and nails, liver protection. Um, Then they end up getting dry, you know, hair and then and these calorie restrictive over cardio diets with not insufficient sleep, they end up with hypothyroidism. And now that brittle hair starts falling out. Those are my concerns with, with the over-restricted diets. Uh, and it's not a lifestyle that anybody wants to maintain. Uh, and, and these days when you're dieting, especially women for shows, they have to diet for much longer. They can't just diet for 60 days anymore. The, the conditioning of the women is such uh, that they're generally dieting for six months. So that's what I'm cautious about. I don't care if people throw in some of their favorite foods. Hofthor would eat an entire meal and then he would down one or two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches on white bread. And it was just, you know, to get more calories and it's what he enjoyed. You know, he'd put some honey on a little bit of oatmeal, but he wouldn't eat, you know, gigantic amounts of oatmeal because that might cause gas and bloating in excessive quantities, depending on how it's prepared. I like to do an overnight soak uh, in apple cider vinegar or yogurt to get, uh, you know, to... uh, ferment the oatmeal. So it's kind of pre-digested. So it's really up to the individual. I'm not going to ever suggest that, you know, eating a pop tart here and there is going to impede your performance. Uh, I'm just going to ask that, you know, you meet the big rocks and you're cautious with things that can throw your whole digestion out of, out of whack. And you said something else about a schedule. Your body likes a schedule. It likes to eat at the same time every day. Um, sleep at the same time every day. It likes these schedules and it also kind of likes the same foods that it gets used to, which is why I'm careful to put some, some variety in there. So I don't, you know, unnecessarily create um, uh, any resistance to other foods that they might eat. I, I don't want people to end up in a situation where, where they're, they're so limited in their selection that their, their body reacts poorly. Um, having said that, when I get near a competition, I, 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 try and avoid eating things I haven't already been eating for the previous 30 days or so. You don't want to introduce something new, you know, go to IHOP and grab yourself some, mm-hmm. some wacky breakfast meal that, you know, sausage and pancakes that you haven't had in weeks or months because you were prepping for a, you know, a meat. Uh, and that can really throw you off the day before a, a competition. Yeah. Awesome. So where, where can, uh, where can people find you? Everything's at Stan Efforting. My website is stanefforting.com. And uh, obviously, I have the Vertical Diet 3.0 ebook, which covers 225 pages with over 200 references to videos, articles, and peer reviewed research. And it's co authored by Dr. Damon McCune, RDN, PhD. So that's kind of my, my primary informational resource. Uh, at Stan Efforting is my Instagram. And then on YouTube, I have a bunch of rants where I talk through you know, it's a bunch of this stuff, Stan Efforting as well. Uh, certainly lots of, of different, uh, uh, you know, YouTube content is, is, uh, is on there as well for free. Awesome. So all that stuff's going to be linked up in the show notes, guys. Definitely make sure you go give him a follow, check out his YouTube channel, puts out tons of great information on a regular basis. Dan, it was awesome to, to chat face to face. Finally, uh, I've been following your stuff for a long time. So it was really, really good to, to have you on the podcast, man. Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Thanks for having me, brother. I appreciate it.